Hello and welcome to the RTE Brainstorm podcast, a home for new ideas and insights on Ireland and the world. It's a unique partnership between RTE and the Irish third level institutions. Now, enjoy the show. Hello. Well, today we're going to delve deep into the minuscule, spectacular world of insects. From wasps who drag their paralysed prey into their nests and eat them alive from the inside out. Sounds lovely. To a rare bee species with a shrill falsetto buzz worthy of Smokey Robinson. What do researchers know about the decline of insects in Ireland? And perhaps most crucially, what can we all do about it? Well, with me are two top insect scientists, Michelle Dugan from NUI Galway and Dara Stanley from University College Dublin. Michelle, you've given your life over to insects, but I understand that the person responsible for starting your insect obsession was an old man you met as an eight-year-old growing up in France at the outdoor markets. Tell me about this man. Yes, this is actually uh, what got me really into the world of entomology. So uh, as a small kid, I used to be the one so in the corner of of uh, the schoolyard looking for little bugs and uh, little things. So the very uncool kid. But at about eight years old, I met at the at the local country fair, that old man who had a massive collection of dried up insects. And I could spend hours just looking at all the different shapes, the different colors, uh, the kind of fangs that they had and all those spikes and very alien creatures that were there. And I found that absolutely fascinating. So I started to save money uh, from my birthday, for, uh, from Christmas, to actually buy some of those bugs. And really meeting that old man and asking him millions of questions while it was like the highlight of my summer. So this is how it, it all started. And you look to that old man when you think about now your career, you're in NUI Galway since 2008. It is this old man who started this obsession from the beginning. It is. And one thing that I really regret is that this old man is actually not alive anymore. Otherwise, I'd be so delighted to just ring him, go and see him and tell him, you, you probably don't remember me, but I was that eight years old that was like just asking you all those questions 30 years ago. And, and you've changed my life. And did you keep the dried insects? I, I, I do actually. They're still at my mother's place and they're very preciously uh, um, put aside in a, in a drawer in, in the middle of little bits of, of cotton wool to make sure that they don't break. <laughs> That's fantastic. Uh, Dara, you've carved out an extraordinary career as a bee expert and you credit your parents for opening your eyes to that world. Uh, there are a lot of bees to choose from, but I wonder, do you have a particular favourite bee species that gladdens your heart? It's a very difficult question. Uh, I've got actually got two favourite bee species, Ella, if I'm allowed. Um, so in Ireland, we've got 99 different species of bees. Um, so we've got a honeybee. Uh, it's probably the most famous bee that everyone knows about. But we also have 20 species of, or 21 species now, with the recent arrival of bumblebees. So my first favourite uh, bee is Bombus distinguendus. It's the great yellow bumblebee. Uh, as the name suggests, it's kind of it's a blonde bombshell of a bee almost. It's really, they, they tend to be big bees. And they've got, uh, they're all blonde with one black stripe 
stripe uh, along their back. So that's normally how you tell bumblebees apart is around their, their colour. So sort of like the Marilyn Monroe of the bee world. Yes. <laughs> and it's also one of Ireland's rarest bumblebees. So it was formerly found widespread around Ireland, uh, but now it's just found on the Mullet Peninsula in County Mayo, where there's some really uh, rich grasslands there that have lots of, of, of clovers and knapweeds and lots of the, the, the plants that this species likes to feed on. So uh, that's my number one. But my number two favourite bee uh, is it's a solitary bee. So um, the vast majority of the bee species we have in Ireland, 77 species of them are smaller solitary bees. Uh, and as their name suggests, they don't live in colonies like bumblebees and honeybees. Each individual bee builds her own nest. Um, so most of them build their nests in the ground um, uh, on south facing banks and in dry areas. Some of them build them in small cavities in, in vegetation. Um, but one species, which is Osmia arelanta, it's a small solitary bee and it actually builds its nests inside snail shells. So uh, they'll lay their eggs inside these snail shells, they provision them with pollen, they'll hatch, they'll eat the pollen and eventually they emerge from these snail shells as adult bees. So they're found mainly on the east and southeast coasts uh, here in Ireland. And Michelle, your work is mainly on venomous insects and I was really captured by this idea of a zombifying wasp. Can you tell me about that? Yes, of course. So um, uh, contrary to what most people think, actually in Ireland, we do have hundreds, if not thousands of venomous species. So those animals are not capable of killing a human being or hurting us, but still they are using venom to actually uh, kill prey or paralyze prey and then eat them. And one great example of that um, is actually the parasitoid wasp. So some of those wasps will look for, let's say, a worm or a caterpillar and they will inject that caterpillar so with their venom. Their venom is not made to actually kill that caterpillar. It's just made to paralyze it. And not to paralyze its most fundamental organs, no, just to paralyze its muscles. So that caterpillar cannot move anymore. It's fully paralyzed. And then that wasp will actually drag that caterpillar into its hide underground and then will lay eggs within the body of that caterpillar. The eggs will hatch and then the larvae will start to feed on all these paralyzed muscles within the caterpillar. And they will finish by eating um, its organs and then when they are ready they will just emerge through the skin as fully adult wasps. I mean, it's completely ingenious. <laughs> Isn't it? It's extraordinary. And, and this, was, this wasp is in Ireland. Yes, yeah. yes. There are dozens and dozens of species like that in Ireland. This whole world that goes on that we don't know anything about. The, the famous American scientist and philosopher Aldo Leopold said about 100 years ago that to be an ecologist is to live alone in a world of wounds. His idea that if you devote your life to species, you're always going to come across death, mini extinctions, loss of habitat. And I wonder, Dara, is it the same for you that... It's actually quite hard to inhabit the world that you inhabit because so often you are looking at these species and you're saying they are under massive, massive pressure. Yeah, that can be true. And I think a lot of my friends and family will say that it's really uh, um, strange going for a walk with an ecologist sometimes because it's very hard to get very far because they want to stop and look at things uh, all the time. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, you've brought up an interesting point there, you know, there are, there are, we do have huge problems in terms of, of biodiversity decline um, and I think we're becoming more and more aware of, of the, the implications that that has for us in, in humans in so many different ways and uh, and really ecologists are perfectly placed to, to study this and to, to, to look into uh, what the problems are and what the drivers of decline are but also uh, to try and think about solutions. I mean scientists have been warning for numerous years about insect decline, Michelle, um, 
I remember a headline in 2017 about insectageddon, terrible word, but the idea that actually everywhere that scientists were looking, in water, in the air, insects uh, are declining and they're declining at a very, very uh, worrying rate. And I wonder, what do we know about the situation in Ireland when it comes to insects? So, unfortunately, we actually do not know much about the situation in Ireland because uh, historically there's been a lack of monitoring. Uh, so we don't really know what is present in Ireland. We don't know in what quantity it is present and we don't know at what speed it is declining. How many insect species do we have? Uh, we're speaking about uh, 11,500 arthropod species in Ireland. So it is quite sizable, it's quite consequent, and most likely the most diverse group of organisms that we have on this island. So we should actually uh, really look into it and we should care about those organisms. But unfortunately, because they're small, because they're often somewhat repulsive to people, we, we don't study them. And what would be your best guess about the status of insects at the moment in Ireland? Well, I think that the situation is probably not different than what we actually see on uh, the European mainland. And that would mean that the situation is actually extremely worrying. So in Germany, for example, in 2017, a study showed that over a period of 27 years, over 75% of the biomass of flying bugs disappeared. 75%. This is just enormous. It, it is actually on a catastrophic scale. And we are going to imbalance completely all ecological niches, all um, food webs, uh, just through our, our, our selfish actions. And, and do you get a, an understanding in Ireland? For example, Dara, we know when we talk about bees that we have this horrifying prediction that a third of all bees will be extinct in over a decade. I mean, it's a staggering prospect. And I wonder if they go missing, then what? Well, I think it, to follow on from what Michelle was saying, I mean, insects are, are understudied in, in many different ways because there's just so many of them and because they're so small. But uh, we're quite lucky in Ireland that we do have data coming out on certain insect groups. So through the National Biodiversity Data Centre, we do have a monitoring scheme in place for both bumblebees uh, and butterflies and some other taxa coming online. So f from the preliminary data coming out for the bumblebee monitoring scheme, which has been running since 2012, there's been a year-on-year -year, uh, decline of about 3.7% of bumblebees. Uh, so that's 14.2% uh, since the scheme began and that's that uh, data that came out from the data centre last year. So we're beginning to build up a picture that, that we are getting declines in Ireland in a similar way to, to declines elsewhere in Europe. What does it mean? Uh, it means a lot of things. It, it means that uh, you know our ecosystems might function as well but if you think of insects, they're, they're quite important in particular when it comes to, to agriculture because they provide some really important services. So a very small number of insects might be pests in agriculture but a huge number of insects are really beneficial. So you think of things like dung beetles, they help dung to decompose. They actually had to, had to uh, introduce dung beetles to Australia because they were having a problem with build-up of dung uh, when the first cattle ranchers out, uh, went out there. So um, other groups of insects that are important in agriculture are bees and pollinating insects. And that's because uh, a number of crops that we grow uh, globally, 75% of our leading food crops benefit from, from pollination by insects in Ireland. We're talking about crops like oilseed rape, field beans, uh, clover, uh, apples, strawberries, raspberries. Uh, these are examples of crops that benefit from insect pollination. So without insects, we, we wouldn't have these services either. I presume you'd agree, Michelle. Yes, completely. To, to actually give you a figure just uh, regarding spiders, we think that globally spiders eat between 400 million and 600 million tonnes, metric tonnes, of pests every year. So that just shows 
to what extent actually those organisms are important even to uh, our own activities and agricultural activities. And you men- mentioned agriculture. Of course, farmers own so much of Ireland and what they do and what the policies sort of direct them to do is so important. We went to Ballinrobe in Mayo and asked farmers, how far do they go to help protect the environment? Oh, we saw bird cover. We saw for the wildlife, really, for the, the wildlife. So, so the corn, low-input grazing, where you don't put out much manure can trap it until the 1st of July. Put out a bag of sand in the corner of the field for the bees. They can go in there and nest and live in it and fence it up where they won't get damaged. Farmers know the land and know nature better than anybody and they don't get a half enough credit for that. But I think really what it's got to be is about the farmer still getting the value for his acre. Money talks at the end of the day. You know, we see farmers, they spray land, they spray to bump up their crop of silage and everything else. Until they're probably told that they just cannot do it, they will continue to do it. Nobody wants to bale a field of docks and weeds either. There isn't much profit in farming now, you know. No. No, the, no they, the expenses are too high. It's out, yeah. out, out every day, all big yes. money. The payment out of glass is not high enough. It's all rules and regulations. Yeah. Well, awesome. Every side you talk. Too many people in chairs giving instructions. There's nothing as easy as to give instructions to people what to do, you know. Changing the goalposts all the time. They're farmers in Ballinrobe in Mayo there. Dara, we are, of course, sitting in chairs. And I wonder what would be the best thing in terms of policy that farming and agriculture could do. There's been such a rapid change in farming from sort of extensive to intensive, mixed to monoculture. Uh, It seems to have put an awful lot of pressure on different species. Yeah, very much so. And I think you've captured a whole range of of views there in that clip. Um, Yeah, so I think you've made a very good point that the vast majority of Ireland, uh, of land in Ireland, sorry, is is, uh, used for agriculture. Uh, And it's very important. I mean, agriculture produces food that we eat. And I think something that came through in those clips as well is that, uh, you know, farmers very much are are, are connected with nature and connected with the land. And uh, and that's hugely important. Um, But at the same time, you know, the way that we do farm can have implications for nature and biodiversity and wildlife. But I think what's important to, to, to understand and, and to think about is how important that nature and wildlife and biodiversity is in itself to farming. Michelle, we think of the natural state of Irish land as being grass and grasslands. Is that correct? No, this is actually uh, something that's deeply ingrained in, in the Irish mind. But the reality is that Ireland was covered at about 80% by a very lush Atlantic rainforest up to a few thousand years ago. And the island that exists now today has been very much shaped by the human hand. So all those grasslands, actually lands that have been reclaimed on existing primordial forest. And unfortunately, those grasslands do not support the kind of biodiversity that we would see if now we still had real original native forest. Ireland is the second least forested country in Europe after Iceland. So it's understandable for Iceland. Its geographic position means that, yes, there is a lot of ice. But Ireland um, is in a completely different position. And we should have at least uh, the equivalent um, forest as the mainland, which is about 40% of of the country covered with trees. This is the average for for mainland Europe. And we are at the moment at 11% in Ireland. And out of those 11%, 9% actually non-native uh, trees. So um, 
spruce that have been planted for commercial purpose and that do not yield uh, real benefit for, for, for biodiversity. And when you think about things like spiders, I was on a, a bog in Offaly a few weeks ago and it really struck me. I got down on my hands and knees into the bog and I couldn't believe the amount of spider webs I was seeing. I mean, it felt like a sort of a nightclub for spiders. They were absolutely everywhere. And of course, you have that incredible diversity in a bogland, don't you? Boglands that are very rare now in Ireland, but astonishing diversity when it comes to to spiders. Yes, um, when it comes to spiders and plenty of other arthropods, actually, uh, boglands are protected in Ireland for that very specific reason. Maybe that they seem to be fairly common in Ireland, but they are extremely rare at the European or at the worldwide level. And you speak about woodlands. Um, talk to me a bit about the centipede because they're found in woods. And, and the reason you came to Ireland, I understand, is because of your love of, of the giant centipede in particular. But what's their role in a wood? Yes, so centipedes and giant centipedes are those absolutely awful creatures that have many legs, far too many legs to actually uh, to, to be trusted, are incredibly <laughs> fast and are venomous as well. So in the tropics, they can reach about a foot long and they're extremely venomous. They can tackle even birds and mice and rats. I can hear everyone groan, a foot long centipede, my <laughs> lord. And in Ireland, we actually have a fair few species of centipedes that are, of course, not a foot long, but can reach about seven to eight centimetres, so about three inches long. And those organisms are extremely important in the leaf litter. They act as what we call a corner species. At the same time, they are at the top of the little leaf litter bug uh, food chain. And the leaf litter being what's at the bottom of a wood. Yes. So all those leaves that fell on the floor and that are just um, rotting on the floor. This particular habitat is extremely important for the health and for the richness of a specific habitat. So in that particular layer that is a few inches thick, you will have a huge diversity of organisms. And there, giant centipedes are the boss. So they're, they're the, the top dogs. Yeah. Yes. They can feed on beetles and on snails and on slugs and on ants, on plenty of other organisms. And at the same time, other kinds of animals that just go into that leaf litter once in a while to look for food can feed on them. Uh, Dara, one of the things that you have looked at, which is particularly fascinating, is is the role of pesticides. I mean, we commonly hear they're bad for bees, but your research looked very, very closely at what exactly happens to a bee when it takes small levels of pesticides. What happens to it? Yeah, so uh, yeah, so pesticides are obviously a really important way of how we farm uh, in, in, and an important part component of modern agriculture and how things are set up. But at the same time, when pesticides are applied to crops to kill insect pests, they can also come in contact with other insects that, that are uh, uh, operating the area. And these are often beneficial insects, things like, like bees and pollinators, but also a whole host of other natural enemies and some of the other insects we've been talking about. And so. what happens to their behaviour? I mean, it sounds to... The, the, the research that I've read of yours, it sounds a little bit like what happens to me when I drink too much alcohol. They just go a bit out of their minds and sort of forgetful. Yeah, so some, so we were interested in, in some of our work in looking at uh, how the activity of bees was affected by, by exposure to these low levels of pesticides. So we used really small uh, tags. They're what we call uh, RFID tags. It's the same technology that's in, for example, your, your Leap card. Um, and these tags, when they pass close to a reader, it allows you to, um, to, to uh, record whether a bee is coming or going from the colony. So we were able to 
to, to using these tags, we were able to see when bees left the colony and when they came back again. And what we found is that bees that were exposed to very low levels of pesticide, they're actually going on longer foraging trips than, than bees that are exposed uh, to, to normal uh, nectar. Um, and that whatever they were doing on those foraging trips, uh, they weren't actually uh, foraging as well. So they were coming back with pollen less often. So, it so were they just sort of going away, forgetting what they were supposed to be doing, hanging around in the air a bit? We're not sure. <laughs> Unfortunately, because uh, it would be, I, I would love to be able to attach a GPS tag to a bee and see where it goes. But unfortunately, the technology just isn't there yet. They're too big. They're too heavy. You could attach them to birds and mammals, but but bees are just too small. So uh, with RFID tags, it allows you to, to see when they leave and when they come back. But what they're actually doing out there, uh, we're not sure. Well, we think about chemical use. We think about managed grasslands, lack of native woodlands. But another big threat to nature is in so-called alien species. We have this idea that species have a place where they belong and they have places where they don't belong. Here in Ireland, we have things like the grey squirrel, American mink, uh, zebra mussel and uh, also Japanese knotweed. Um, and they're all causing problems to our native species. And we heard from Fidelma Butler. She's a zoologist in UCC who told us a bit about the white-toothed shrew. So a shrew looks like a little mouse with a long nose, a long snout. And shrews are insectivores, so they eat insects. You don't really see them that much. They are tiny little creatures. They live in the undergrowth. They live in woodland and grassland. You may hear them because they do produce a very high-pitched sound, very, very high-pitched that younger people can hear because they produce this kind of ultrasonic sound, very, very high-pitched. The pygmy shrew is pygmy. It's tiny, very, very small, about the size of your thumb. And the greater white-toothed shrew is about the size of a big mouse. And this greater white-toothed shrew poses a threat to our little native species. Fidelma Butler, a zoologist in UCC there. Uh, Michelle, uh, there is a problem uh, with earthworms, I gather, in Ireland, and that involves an alien species from New Zealand, the flatworm. Yes, absolutely. Uh, since the 1970s, um, we actually have sightings so of those uh, New Zealander flatworms that arrived with horticultural products as well, so potted plants and shrubs. And... Um, those worms most likely arrived in Belfast, so in the 1970s, and they've been spreading throughout Ireland since. Now, what's very interesting is that we really wondered if this species had a negative impact on um, on native species. And we actually realised so that, first, they are predators of earthworms. They feed specifically and uniquely on earthworms. And this is a massive issue. Now, you would have thought that since the 1970s, we would have had time to actually do something against those those flatworms. But no, nothing has been done and um, nobody controls if they're still coming or not. So our pre preliminary results uh, of DNA testing tend to show that actually invasions are still continuing and that we are still bringing those flatworms with potted plants. So we will have to act at some point. Soft through the shadow of the evening sun. 
Well, to end, uh, I want to ask you both uh, uh, some uh, a question uh, for inspiration, if you like. The famous e- uh, biologist E.O. Wilson said of insects, it's the small things that run the world. And I suppose the problem is that many of these small things like to share our homes with us. And uh, I wonder if you can give people a reason not to take out the hoover, Michelle, and uh, suck up house spiders, because uh, I have a real love of house spiders where I live. But I wonder, you know, there's an awful lot of people think of them as pests and get terrified when they see them. But I gather they have an amazing array of of behaviours. Yes, yes, they're actually incredible creatures. And just to, to actually give you one example, for example, the lace web spider that is extremely frequent on window ledges. This spider is an excellent mother. So the female will actually lay eggs in a cocoon and then she will sacrifice herself so her children can actually survive. She will let her children eat her so they have a first meal that will provide them with enough energy so they'll have a better start in life. And this is kind of that ultimate maternal sacrifice. And there is something that's quite poetic and beautiful in that. All this drama is happening in our homes, which is the most extraordinary thing. Dara, your head must be spilling over with wonderful bee stories, but I wonder, is there one that still makes you think, wow, these are just incredible well, I think uh, my favourite thing to think about is, is buzz pollination. So buzz, uh, so some flowers uh, actually protect the pollen within them until the right bee comes along. And this is a bee that can actually buzz its wings at the right frequency to release the pollen from those uh, flowers to feed itself and also to pollinate the flower. So uh, crops, things like tomatoes and, and blueberries uh, need this buzz pollination uh, to happen. Uh, it's bumblebees uh, can be very good buzz pollinators, as can solitary bees. And it's something that actually honeybees aren't very good at. And in some situations where people grow tomatoes uh, commercially, if they don't have bees, they actually have to use a, a human handheld vibrating instrument to uh, to uh, buzz pollinate them. But bees are, are really the, the organisms that can do it best. Um, and I'm currently eating a whole lot of raspberries from my garden and I have to be thankful for, to the bees for, for providing those to us as well. And if you want to know more about insects, you can go to rte.ie forward slash brainstorm, where there are lots of different articles you can read about them. But for now, Dara Stanley and Michelle Dugan, thank you so much. The programme is produced by Kieran O'Byrne and the editor is Jim Carroll. Research is by Louise Denver. Brainstorm is an RTE project in association with University College Cork, NUI Galway, University of Limerick, DCU, TU Dublin, Ulster University, Maynooth University and the Irish Research Council. This programme is available as a podcast from rte.ie slash brainstorm.